0: If it is ever uh, if it's ever on your bucket list to say preach through the minor prophets, just if make sure you read all twelve of them first, because then you come to a book like Nahum. So if you would turn with me to Nahum, we're gonna we're gonna see what Nahum has to say today in our series on these short twelve books at the back of your Old Testament these. Minor short prophets. if you were if you were to read Nahum, uh, I think that most of us would be shocked. You would be shocked that the Bible contains language like this. And you would even wonder why a church called Grace Fellowship, would have a book in its Bible by a man named Nahum who proclaims anything but uh, anything but the grace of God. Nahum, for all three short chapters, is a book of judgment against the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. Uh, and so, if you've been with us for any of these sermons, just a quick recap, right... The minor prophets show us Israel at the end of its life, okay? They start with Hosea, and things look pretty good in Hosea's day as far as the culture is concerned. But as far as the worship of the Lord is concerned, things are a mess. And beginning with Hosea, we see how Israel's departure from the Lord, from their one true God, means that their society will begin to unravel and fall apart. And that begins with Assyria... Wiping out the northern half of the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And by the time we get to Nahum, that has already happened. Assyria has taken away, has uh, destroyed the northern kingdom and has exiled, uh, if it didn't kill them, it exiled most of its people. And now they are in control. Assyria is in control of the remaining uh, Jewish people in the southern kingdom in Judah, okay? And so... The glory days of Hosea are gone, uh, and things are rather grim. Um, Now a a pagan nation like Assyria, a ruthless, bloodthirsty nation, Nahum says in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls Nineveh the bloody city, right? These, um, well, these terrorists from northern Iraq, what would be modern-day northern Iraq, are in control of God's people. Uh, and so we did not plan uh, to preach Nahum uh, on the week after the death of 21 Christian brothers in Egypt, um, but you can see that, well, God's people are no stranger uh, no stranger to such things. So before we read through Nahum and look at what Nahum has to say, let's pray together. Again, Lord, we dive into a book that we are unfamiliar with, and for many of us, we may see here a God whom we are unfamiliar with, Um, language that we are unfamiliar with in the Bible, feelings that we uh, are afraid of, and so God, would you be gracious to us as we open this up and as we go through, God, would you be gracious to me as a preacher very a very hard book, and as we listen to and try to learn from a very hard book, would you be uh, gracious in this process, help us to understand, help us to make sense, God, and help us to even adore and worship you more um, because of what we see here. So, Lord, would you help us to understand your word and really understand you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, with that introduction, are you ready? Nahum, we're just going to read a few verses in chapter 1 and and then we'll stop. Nahum 1, chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake. Before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the boulders are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of her, of Nineveh, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end; trouble will not rise up a second time. Right? Can you believe that? That um, that. That ought to unsettle you It unsettles me a little bit to read it. This kind of unrelenting psalm of destruction that's talking about our God, right? That's talking about the God that we worship, the God who sent Jesus into the world to redeem guilty sinners. The same God, and we cannot get away with saying that the God of the New Testament is somehow different from the God of the Old Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Um, The writers of the New Testament wouldn't let you get away with that. Okay? In fact, they didn't even have the New Testament because they were writing it. So, the, Paul and John and Peter and James, they had this book. And out of this book, they wrote about uh, and talked about the same God who would have grace on sinners. So, uh, here's, what, here's what Nahum tells us. And this can be uh, scary, as it should be, and it can be both comforting, but it's this, that God's just wrath comes upon his enemies. God's just wrath does in fact come upon his enemies. Right? I mean, right there in verse 2, okay, you have the name of the Lord. Right? If you were to, if you were to read this in Hebrew, you would see this in verse 2. The Lord and vengeance side by side three times in a row. The Lord, vengeance. The Lord, vengeance. The Lord, vengeance. The Lord, vengeance. Okay, Uh, so Nahum is obviously making a point, and at least one of those points is this, that God is jealous. And what we need to ask ourselves is, is there room in our theology, is there room in your knowledge and experience of God for that reality? Is there room in your knowledge and experience of God for the reality that God is jealous and vengeful? And maybe it would help uh, if we defined what we mean by jealous, right? Because this is where Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, this is where Oprah missed the point, right? She tells a story of when, uh, of growing up in church. The moment that she decided to leave the church and biblical Christianity uh, was the moment that she heard the preacher say that God is a jealous God, right? And for Oprah, she thought that meant that God was somehow jealous of her. And that didn't really square with the other things that the Bible said about God being good and loving. And so she left. That was her point of departure. She said, okay, well, I can't, I can't worship that God. And so she kind of went off on her own to create something else. Um, so she missed the point. She didn't get the right definition. But you know what? We do the same thing, right? Rather than conform ourselves to reality... We kind of want to conform reality to us, and this is this is why when we read a sentence like "God is jealous," and it doesn't square with what we want it to say, or we we say, or or maybe you know, if you're if you're not a Christian, but you you say, "Listen, all I know is that that God should be good and loving. How can a good and loving God be jealous?" Right? If those are your um, if those are your problems then you're in the right place, right? This makes us uncomfortable. This confronts us with a reality that we cannot conform to ourselves. We have to conform to it. So what do we mean that God is jealous, right? This is not... right. We do not take Nahum 1, verse 2. This is not the one we write on our mirrors to get us psyched about. The debt. We don't put this on cutesy cards and put it on the fridge, okay? This is not... Listen, this is not where you lead off, probably, when you're going to... If somebody says, hey, tell me about God. Well, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. That may not be where you start, okay? It's probably not where I would start, uh, but it's the reality. So what do we mean that that God is jealous? First, let's say this. Jealousy in God is a good thing. Now, in us, it does not look good, okay? Or let me say this. It doesn't always look good. But think about this. Um, Think of a husband who is not jealous for his wife's affections. Ladies, would you want that man? Would you want a man who was indifferent, uh, who was indifferent as to how you felt about him? Right? Men, would you want. A wife who was indifferent to you. No, right? You want, uh, you want jealousy to a certain degree. You want jealousy in your spouse, right? Or think about it this way from a parenting aspect. If my three sons, right, while I am alive and doing my job the best I can as a father, if my three sons were to call... This is straight from Jake McCall, so this is not my own example. But if my three sons were to call another man father... Or dad, that feeling that wells up within me is a good and holy jealousy because they're mine, right? Uh, I've provided for them. I take care of them. I love them, okay? I'm, I'm aiming to raise them. So they are, they are mine, and I am jealous for their affections, right? In the same way that um, spouses, you, you want your spouse to be jealous for you kids in the same way that you want your parents to be jealous over you. And I promise you do want that, right? We want a jealous God, right? Jealousy in God is a good thing because jealousy is a reflection of His love. Think about this question. Um, what, what is the opposite of love? Okay, good. Much better, right? Hate, all right? Um, Oftentimes, right, the objection that I hear is God cannot be love and angry. Or God cannot be love and jealous. But the opposite of love is not anger. For I think we could all attest to a moment when anger was aroused rightly out of love. Okay? The opposite of love is hatred. And this is from Rebecca Pippert. Uh, The opposite of love is not anger, but hatred. And the highest form of hatred is indifference. Right? Think about that. The highest form of hatred is indifference. Imagine imagine a universe where humanity rebels against its creator, um, where... Where men from one religious group take twenty one men from a rival religious group and they behead them. Right? So imagine that reality, but but in but instead of a jealous God who reigns in the heavens, what you have is a creator who says eh. that that would be concerning, would it not? We would, be, uh, we would be appalled at that. And so I say that to, to make the point that you want a jealous God in control of the universe. You want someone who is angered uh, by sin. Right. So instead of God's love and God's jealousy being in contradiction with each other, actually God is jealous because God is love. His jealousy is the reflection of his offended love. Because God's love is offended by sin. Because God's holiness is offended by sin. He is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his people. And he moves in vengeance. Okay? Um, And now we need to ask this question. Why does God care? Why is... Why is God not indifferent? Right? We we know if we're familiar with the Bible or you've been around church I'm like right, we understand that God hates sin and that God is holy. But why? Why does why does God in his holiness hate sin? Why is he not indifferent to sin? Right? The Bible's clear from Genesis to Revelation that God will wipe out and do away with everything evil and sinful that stands against him. So he is perfect Justice, goodness, holiness, truth, right? That is his glory. And everything that is against that injustice, blasphemy, hatred, anger, or unrighteous anger, right? All those sins that stand against him that are the sign of our rebellion, right? He will do away with that. But why? I was kind of struck with that question as I read through Nahum, right? Why, why doesn't God just let it go? And I think the reason is this, and I think it's in this word, jealousy, because he loves so deeply, and he made the whole world to reflect his happiness and joy and glory. He made you to be like him. He made me to know him and reflect his glory. That's the essence of life. Okay? Um and when we rebel against god when when we sin we actually instead of choosing life right we introduce death into the equation and into god's world and that's not the way he made it to be and so i think the reason that god hates sin is not because it can hurt or kill him but because it hurts and kills the very things that he loves God is a jealous avenger. His hatred of sin is bound up in the fact that He loves what He has made and He is angry when sin corrupts it and defiles it and destroys it. In the same way that uh, you are jealous over letting your children run through the parking lot at the grocery store. Okay? Uh, I, am, I am rightly angry with my boys when they take off from the van to head towards the front of the store because I know the danger that exists between the safety of the van and the safety of the front door and they do not and they are doing something that will bring great harm on themselves and so I yell and I bring them back right God's jealous anger moves against sin because he hates it because he loves what he has made Okay, so God is jealous. God takes vengeance, right? If jealousy's his heart, then out of his heart comes vengeance. Again, we're uncomfortable with that because we confuse God's vengeance with our own. We think that right that God's vengeance looks like my vengeance. So when I get really angry about something, that I overreact. That's how I take vengeance. Um, but that is not. That's not how. This works, right? If one eye is taken from me, then I might move to remove both of the other person's eyes. But that's not how God's vengeance works. God is perfect in His justice. And so, as Paul would tell in the New Testament, Paul tells the Roman Christians in Romans 12, 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head do not overcome by evil excuse me do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good so paul says that it is because god takes vengeance that we don't have to it is because god is just and he will repay the evil doer that we don't have to Right? that I can rest in his vengeance, and his vengeance is just and perfect. And it suits the crime. Um, flip over to, to Nahum 3. What you have in Nahum 2 is the actual description of the fall of Nineveh. Uh, and it's pretty harrowing, but I want, you to, I want you to read this with me in Nahum 3. starting in verse 1, Woe, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of armies, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you, and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Pretty awful, right? Um, Again, we we read that and we go, That's in in the Bible? Um, As awful as that sounds, remember that God is fair in meeting out His justice. In fact, He is the only fair judge that has ever lived. Okay, and he is bringing against Assyria exactly what they brought against other nations. He is doing to them, he will do to them, and has done to them what they had done to others. His justice meets their crime exactly. Okay, so and that far from being scary means that we can live in a dangerous and treacherous world knowing that there is a God who will set things right. Right, The reason we can live in this world, which is very dangerous and very treacherous, at which any moment right, uh, something bad can happen, Right, we can live in that world because there is a God who will set things right. If not now, in the end. That is... That is the God of Nahum. And I think we have to make room. We have to conform ourselves to that reality. We cannot be scared of this God. Uh, there's, a, there's a book, and of course now the name escapes me. But it's the, it's the story of a man who goes to Ukraine uh, to adopt a daughter. The Grace Effect, that's what it's called, The Grace Effect. Okay? Christian man, he goes to Ukraine to adopt... Uh, his daughter, and the whole book is his observation on how, right, when communist Russia overtook Ukraine, and wiped God out of the history books, out of the worldview, there there was no God, there was only the state, right? What that did to people's moral compass. Um, and, he, and, he, and what he does is he takes the United States, where God has not been removed from the worldview, but where, in fact, the, the worldview is built on who God is, as revealed in the Bible, and Ukraine, where he has been taken away. And he shows how even in the, in the halls of justice, there is no justice, right? That in order to get anything done, you must bribe people. Um, and even then, they will still take advantage of you, right? Right? Um, when you remove a just God out of someone's life, right, because the, the, um, the objection is, okay, if God is just like you say he is, then that will cause people to be hateful. Then that will cause people to abuse other people that don't believe like you do. If you look at Ukraine, even today, if you look at any of the former Soviet countries where God was removed from the world view, you will not see people who gladly take care of each other. You will not see laws followed meant to protect one another. What you will see is people abusing each other, like right, the powerful abusing the weak because they can, because they do not believe there is a God that they will face. They do not believe that there is a king on the throne in heaven that they will have to, to answer to, Right? Listen, if the only end you can imagine is that you will go into the dirt and be worm food, if that's it, then you have no reason to live a good life, right? Morality goes out the window because no one's watching, okay? Uh, So that's why we must make room in our theology, in our heads, for the God of the Bible, the God of Nahum, okay? He's just. He's an avenger. But here's the last thing I want to point out. God is a comforter. What? How, how can you get God as a comforter out of this? Read again, Nahum 1.6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? That doesn't sound very comforting. In fact, the answer to the question is no one, right? No one can stand before his righteous indignation. But there's another side to God's justice, and there's there's glimmers of it in Nahum. And it's actually the beating heart behind his jealousy. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Actually, so that you get the full effect, let's start at verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Look upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly Cut off. What does Nahum see? Right? He sees he sees the messengers and they're coming from the battle. They're coming from the battle where their enemy Assyria has been crushed and Nineveh has been leveled, and they're running to Jerusalem across the mountaintops, and they're declaring good news. They're declaring gospel. Right? And what are they saying? Peace. Your enemy has been defeated. Now you can worship. Now you can keep your feast. Now you can rejoice because the one who lorded it over you, he is gone. Your enemy has fallen. And so here's the the principle. There can be no peace. There can be no salvation unless your enemy is defeated. There is no comfort unless your enemy is defeated. In order... For salvation to come, God's justice must be met. Salvation can only come after God's justice has been met. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, Assyria was at the height of its power when Nahum prophesied this. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. God's people will be free again. And they will be free when Assyria's chains are broken. And they will be broken when God pours out his justice. Does this sound familiar? Just... Like them, you cannot know salvation until your enemy has been defeated. You cannot be free until God has broken the chains that your enemy uses to hold you. The principle holds. And so the question is, how does that happen? You all that's what Jesus came to do. Right? Jesus came and they expected him to wield the sword. They expected him to crush the Romans. That's what Jesus' contemporaries wanted, right? They wanted they wanted Nahum's vengeance. Taken on Rome. But Jesus had a much bigger enemy in mind. Jesus came to defeat Satan himself. But here's the irony of God's justice it was poured out on the perfect sun. All of these. All of these things that Nahum says about Assyria, all of the things that Assyria deserves, all the things that you and I deserve because of the way that we have sinned and we've rebelled against God, the way we've killed our brothers and sisters and and hurt ourselves, all that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve, poured out on him, poured out on his perfect son. Why? Why? So that as Paul says in Romans ten fifteen, echoing this verse, so that we can hear good news. So that we can hear peace. So that we can be set free from the chains of sin and death that Satan uses. That's the gospel of Nahum. Jesus takes the wrath and curse of his father full on. And for those who trust in him, good news, peace, you are free. Let's pray. Lord, we do not like to read of judgment. I think because we know that we deserve it. And to be honest, it frightens us when you talk this way. That your wrath is a scary thing. And we know that we cannot stand in front of it. That it would crush us. That we would be broken to pieces by it. And yet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That we are not crushed we are not obliterated we are not wiped away cast out of your presence forever because of Jesus because we have one who for our sakes was crushed who endured the full fury of your wrath so that we would be Set free. God, for those who have not yet embraced this truth, this gospel, this good news, I pray that you would redeem them, that we would see the beauty of Nahum, that we would even see the beauty, the hard beauty, but the good beauty of a God who is just and a God who avenges those that he loves and a God who comforts his people with his own mercy. Father, we pray for the families of our 21 brothers martyred in a foreign land, those saints, those soldiers, true and bold, having fought the fight and won the battle in you, they now rejoice. Oh, Lord, don't let us be so complacent. In fact, we repent of our complacency like, like the Israelites in the, in the prophet's day who were complacent simply because they had the temple, but they did not know you. Lord, don't let us be so complacent. May we press on to know the one who has redeemed us and paid for all of our sin. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.